It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. This episode is brought to you by Zencaster, the amazing platform I've been using to record the audio and video versions of this show since March 2020. It is the number one tool I recommend to podcasters. So if you're thinking of starting your own show or optimizing one you already have, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan. WELLEVATOR is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. The guest today is behind one of my favorite sleep-related companies called Swanwick. You may have heard this brought up in some previous episodes because I've been wearing Swanwick blue blocker glasses for many years, I think at least five, six, going on seven now. And I can't remember what happened in my life that inspired me to start wearing them. I feel like I had been hearing about blue blockers from other people and seeing people wearing them. I love the stylishness. I remember I have a very core memory of, I think, in 2018, seeing Dave Asprey wear them on stage. And it was actually a big deal for me because I've always associated these glasses with sleeping in that I tend to wear them before I go to bed as a way to wind down. They're part of my nighttime routine. I feel like they help me get into my sleep mode. If I'm going to be reading a book on my iPad, for example, I feel like they're helping my eyes. But I want to hear more from James today to confirm exactly what's going on with my eyes. But I've also started wearing them when I wake up, especially if I use any devices shortly after getting up. I feel like it helps me wake up and ease into the day. And I remember seeing Dave Asprey, who's behind the brand Bulletproof, wearing glasses on stage at a conference. And it clicked in me how many other times in my day that I could wear them, especially at conferences. So I've started bringing these everywhere I go to take good care of my eyes and be mindful of lighting. And blue blocker glasses also gave me more awareness. I didn't really know what blue light was, so I hope we can get into that today. But also another subject that James is passionate about is alcohol. And this is something that I have been raising my own awareness about in the past year or so. After actually TikTok, I had posted some videos about some alcohol alternatives And I was just kind of curious about these things. I enjoy trying all sorts of unique products. And there's this brand called Seedlip. And I made this short video about it. And I could not believe the response that it had. It opened my eyes, pun intended, to the Blue Blocker reference. It opened my eyes to how many people choose not to drink alcohol or can't drink alcohol based on all different circumstances. And I'm really curious to talk to you about that, James, because 
I guess I kind of had the privilege of not thinking that hard about alcohol. Alcoholism is not something I've had a lot of direct experiences with personally, with my family or friends. It hadn't come up in a religious context. There haven't been any major health issues. Nothing's really prevented me from drinking alcohol. But when I saw the response that people had to alcohol alternatives and hearing the stories behind why people are choosing not to drink alcohol or go do things like dry January, which I didn't even know about, it just felt like this whole new world was revealed to me. So James, both of your focuses in your career are things that have opened my eyes literally and figuratively. So I'm grateful for the work that you do. And I imagine that you probably hear this quite often. (laughs) I mean, I bet you get a lot of questions from people that don't know much about light and sleep and alcohol. Is that right? Yeah, I do. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. I stopped drinking in 2010. And just to be clear, I I wasn't an alcoholic. I was just a socially acceptable drinker. Society would say, oh yeah, that's an appropriate amount that you drink. I would have a glass or two each night on weekends. Sure, I might drink more than maybe is socially acceptable. But I was just a glass here, a couple of beers there. I wasn't getting drunk. I wasn't getting DUIs. I wasn't waking up in the gutter and doing silly things. Of course, there are people that do have problems with alcohol. But what I realized is that it was just slowing me down and holding me back with my health, with my mindset. And I just got tired of it. And so, I took a break and I thought it would be a 30-day break. And in 30 days, I lost... 13 pounds, which is extraordinary, just fell off me. I slept better. My skin really improved. I actually, I was amazed at how many people were saying, oh, gee, you look good. And all I did was just stop drinking toxins from alcohol. And at the time, I auditioned to be a television host on a TV show called Sports Center on ESPN. And I ended up getting that job. And so, I credit the clarity and the strategy and the energy that I had from not drinking for really helping me land that job, which was just a a dream come true. So, I heard you say the word alcoholism before, just as you were introducing me. What's really interesting to me is that you don't have to be an alcoholic in order for alcohol to really compromise your life because it's sometimes this invisible thing that's just lurking underneath the surface where just a seemingly innocent glass of wine at the end of the night is enough to compromise your sleep just a little bit and it's enough to have you wake up irritable just a little bit and it's enough to have you snap at your kids or your husband or your wife just a little bit. And before you know it, your life may have ordinarily naturally be a 9 out of 10 but now it's dropped down to like a seven, seven and a half. And the difference can be profound in your life. So, just wanted to give that context there. Yeah. And thank you for that. That makes me wonder, it almost sounds counterintuitive because it seems like a lot of the things that you're listing are the reasons that people drink. It's so common people say they're drinking to take the edge off. They're drinking to help themselves fall asleep, to feel less stressed, to cope with life. And it also reminds me of something that I saw on Twitter earlier today, which was a question about sleep during the time of the pandemic, which now is about two years in. And people, 
having a dialogue around how much their sleep has changed during the pandemic. And I wonder if there's a correlation between that and the rise in alcohol that I'm not sure statistically, maybe you know, did alcohol go way up to drinking? Did people start drinking more during the pandemic? Yeah, they did. There are studies out of New York, Minnesota, a few other places in the US where people's alcohol consumption went up, the rate of depression went up, anxiety went up, alcohol-related deaths went up. It's pretty frightening. And just in relation to sleep, alcohol is a huge contributing factor to poor sleep. When you drink alcohol in the last three hours before sleep, your body is now going to work. Like You're putting your liver to work essentially to break down the toxins that you've just fed it. And so, your body is now not in a restorative state. It's now in a working state. And while it's true that many people anecdotally say that a glass of wine or a drink or two at the end of the day helps them to fall asleep, that is true because it makes them drowsy. The quality of their sleep is severely compromised to the extent where they will wake up and feel tired and lethargic, even if they've had seven or eight hours sleep, which is generally regarded to be the amount of time that human beings should sleep. So, yeah, alcohol will put you to sleep, but it'll also make you feel tired and lethargic and irritable and anxious and stressed, which will just lead you to want to drink more of the very product that creates stress and anxiety and irritation and frustration. It's a vicious cycle. The other thing that went up is screen use. So, people during the pandemic are looking at screens in increasing amounts. I'm wearing a pair of my blue light blocking glasses at the moment. People becoming aware of the danger of staring into a screen all day. Awareness certainly went up. People using blue light blocking glasses, whether it's with a orange lens or whether it's with a clear lens, that went up. But for those people who weren't aware of dangers of blue light and who were staring into their screen, it's incredible that macular degeneration in the eyes, stress, headaches, all increased during the pandemic. In fact, they've been increasing for many years, but especially so during the pandemic as people stayed at home and got onto screens more and drank more. So, you asked me at the beginning of our chat here about the companies that I create. I mean, the companies that I create, I help people sleep better. I help people reduce or quit alcohol. And that's because I wanted to sleep better and I found a way and I wanted to get off alcohol or at least reduce it and I found a way. And clearly very important missions to be on because I feel like sleep is must be, and again, I'm sure you've researched to back this up, but must be one of the top two or three issues that people face. And when I hear about people that are struggling, it's either they're feeling some emotional challenge like burnout, anxiety, stress, depression, as you mentioned, they're struggling to sleep, and maybe they're struggling with your weight, which you've all mentioned. And so it seems like there's a lot of tie-ins. There's so many links to these things. And also what you said about being a socially acceptable drinker. I'm really curious about that in terms of you're saying how much of a difference just one drink of alcohol makes. Can you talk more about that and what you found? And again, like I want to hear more about your story in that if you were just kind of casually drinking, how much were you drinking 
for it to make that much of a difference when you stopped entirely, because that's an incredible change that you went through. Yeah. So I grew up in Australia and Australia has a very, let's call it a supportive drinking culture where you're supported and encouraged to consume alcohol. And I refer to alcohol as attractively packaged poison, just so you understand. So you see where I am on the spectrum now, because really all it is, is just poison. You're pouring toxins down your throat, plain and simple. There's no other way to look at it. That's just the reality. They're, they're the facts. But it's culturally accepted. And in Australia, when you're at the dinner table as a child and you're watching your parents have a nightly drink or a beer and you say, mummy or daddy, can I have a sip? And they go, oh, no, little Johnny, you can have a drink when you're older. So, in that moment, they're already implanting in your mind that there's a rite of passage that you get to enjoy this attractively packaged poison when you're 17 or you're 18, whatever the age they think is appropriate, yeah? So, they're already grooming you to adore this thing that we call alcohol. It's a very subconscious kind of animalistic, primal, subconscious brain thought that they have just implanted into your 10-year-old, 11-year-old self. When you're older, you'll be able to enjoy alcohol. And so, what happens? We get to 16, 17, 18, and now all of a sudden we're celebrating our birthdays and now we're drinking alcohol and the parents are okay with it. And then, of course, our peers are getting drunk at college fraternities and we're, everyone's smiling and laughing as they do this. And then you get into your early 20s and you might join the workforce and then it's like, let's go for drinks after work. Let's celebrate with some drinks. Maybe you're having some romantic relationships and, well, you must have a bottle of wine for a romantic candlelit dinner. And then you're seeing sports stars and you're watching the advertise alcohol and you're watching the Super Bowl commercials and the ads are all hilarious and funny. You've got like goofy guys in Coors Light Beer commercials and you've got very attractive horses and dogs in Budweiser commercials and they're funny and everyone's laughing as, oh, yeah, that's great. And so it's like implanting this culture that drinking attractively packaged poison is fun and creates a bond and a connection between people. It's ridiculous if you really break this down because you can create a bond and a connection and have fun and laugh and be hysterical and just live a fantastic life without having to drink the attractively packaged poison. So, I just wanted to share that because culture has been brainwashed. Let me ask you this question. Champagne. What do you associate champagne with in terms of the feeling? When you think of champagne, what do you think of? Celebrations. Celebration, right. But why? Why do you associate it with celebration? I mean, it's marketing. It's, it's marketing. I guess brainwashing, right? It's people conditioning, perhaps, is a better term. Like yeah. Just for all those reasons you shared. Some clever marketer at a champagne company at a point in time said, you know what we'll do? We'll associate champagne with celebration. Because think about it, what is champagne? Well, it's just it's just alcohol, right? It's just sweet tasting alcohol. 
what's that got to do with champagne? Nothing really. Someone invented that. Someone just invented the idea that we're now going to associate champagne with celebration. And so now, <laughs> now we see professional sports teams win the championship and what do they do? They bring in the bottles of champagne, they shake it up, they co- pop the cork and they're pouring it over themselves and they're drinking it as if this is the most amazing day of their life. We just won the NBA championship. Let's drink some champagne. And so now it's enforcing this belief that champagne is fun and champagne is celebration and we just go along with it. But really, if you just break down what champagne is, it's just toxins. That's all it is. So, again, I just share this just to invite you and our listeners to kind of start to look at alcohol through a different lens. And that reminds me of a video that you posted on TikTok. I'm not sure if this is a new video, but I just saw that it was posted recently of you talking about celebrities and George Clooney specifically. That was the title of the video. And I started thinking about how all these celebrities now have their own alcohol lines or they're hired to be associated with the brands, but we see the Kardashians. And for some reason, the next person that came to mind was some of the characters from the Breaking Bad. Again, names are escaping me in this moment. But people that are getting on board with building these whole brands around alcohol and liquor and wine and just creating this whole idea around and you were listing in your video, which I'll link to for anyone who wants to go watch it because it's such a great overview briefly of what exactly goes through our minds when we see someone who's attractive, who's successful, who's influential, who has money and fame and power, all of these things that a lot of us strive to achieve or think that we want and we see them showing their lifestyle with alcohol and how that impacts us on levels that we may not even realize. And I thought that was such an important point that you made, just like, as you said, these ideas that have been implanted in our brains around alcohol. And do you think that that's just a way to make money? Like, is that at the core of all this as a marketing scheme to get people to spend things on something that they not only don't need, but actually isn't good for them? It's all marketing. What you were referencing was George Clooney and Randy Gerber. They created a tequila company and they sold it for $1 billion. Very, very successful brand it was. And the marketing around the tequila was George Clooney wearing a black leather jacket, riding a motorcycle and Randy being very cool and riding a motorcycle and them kind of catching up and sharing this tequila and smiling and laughing. And the inference there is that cool and successful and handsome and suave people drink tequila and particularly drink their tequila. Well, what's tequila? I mean, tequila is just a product that we make that, again, is full of toxins and poison. And if you drink any amount of it is not great for you. But yet we throw these handsome men around it who have good reputations. They've got, let's face it, everyone, well, it seems like most people at least like George Clooney. No, I haven't heard any people who dislike him. And so you go, oh, okay. George Clooney drinks attractively packaged poison. All right, that's for me. Cool, I'll do that. So I think people are increasingly waking up and I hope that celebrities or well-known folks will increasingly get behind alcohol-free products in the future. Um, I actually have a belief that in 20 years from now, alcohol will be viewed with the same disdain as cigarette smoking is today 
some people think I'm crazy to believe that, but I think people's education and awareness is improving. And you're right, because there's so many options coming up now. I mean, I've noticed a massive increase in just the past six months, at least of companies marketing themselves well about their alcohol-free alternatives. So have you noticed a big shift recently as well? Yeah, yeah. there's been an explosion of alcohol-free products. As we're recording this now, I'm in Australia, my native country, although I've lived in the US for most of my adult life, but I'm in Australia and... I- it's amazing how many of those alcohol-free brands I'm seeing now in stores and advertised online. So that space is really, it's exploding to the point where I'm now personally looking to create my own alcohol-free line. I'm not quite sure whether I'm going to do wine or alcohol-free spirits or whether it's uh, RTD, which is ready to drink, which is stuff in cans. haven't quite figured that out yet, but I'm inspired enough to be starting the initial stages of getting something like that off the ground. What is your alcohol consumption, if I may ask, and what has it been and how has it changed over the years? Well, historically, I have not been someone who drinks a lot of alcohol and I go through fluctuations. To be honest, I have been in a period where I've found drawn to the taste. So as you're talking about uh, wanting to make a new product, I've tried a lot of the alcohol-free options out there because I've realized that it is about the taste and the experience. I don't care about the buzz. That's never drawn me in. I just like the experience of a cocktail or the taste of wine or beer. And fortunately, I think there's amazing things being done with cocktails and beer alternatives, but the space that I have not found a great alternative to is wine. I tried an alcohol-free champagne last year and I was so excited. It was beautiful, certainly replicated the experience, but not the taste. So yeah, that's really my relationship is I feel drawn to alcohol because I want to experience something. If it's like at a restaurant and they have an amazing cocktail list, I'm drawn into the flavor combinations. And fortunately in Los Angeles, there are bars now that are starting to use products like Seed Lips so I can get the same experience. So I'm excited by that. And I think based on everything that you're sharing, that's going to make a big difference for people like me who really find themselves just wanting to taste something great and feeling like in the past it was always tied to alcohol. Yeah. For me also being plant-based, my transition away from animal products to plant-based products, like a lot of that was, what can I find that's going to taste like cheese? That's going to taste like meat. And all the innovations that have happened over time that have made it easier for people that were only eating those foods because of the taste or the experience and now can make a different choice if they would like to. I I hope that you're right. I would say if you could master the wine, (laughs) have you found a wine that even comes close or doesn't just taste like grape juice? Well, the irony is, is that I rarely drink alcohol-free drinks that are labeled as alcohol-free drinks. I just tend to drink soda, water, ice, and a piece of lime when I'm out to dinner, and that always satisfies me. The answer is no, I haven't found a great wine alternative yet, but thank you for the tip. I'll go and explore one for you, Whitney. I'll see if I can surprise you with a good-tasting alcohol-free wine. <laughs> and have you ever noticed the correlation between on those occasions where you have had alcohol or maybe eaten poorly and your sleep? Have you noticed a correlation between either of those factors? It's interesting because I don't drink alcohol that frequently. I 
I'm sure that I have, but it's not something that I've given much thought to. So I, I will from now on, I'm sure, but food for sure. I have a lot of mm. food sensitivities. And actually last night, I had a big food sensitivity flare up based on some choices I made and I slept horribly. Uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and woke up this morning feeling awful and inflamed. And yeah, it's insane. And uh, actually, one thing I meant to start off this t- this talk with today, because it's really relevant, is immediately after we finish recording today, I'm going to the doctor to get the results of a sleep study because I've had a sleep disorder my whole life. And I've been trying to get to the root of it. And now that you're bringing this up, I feel like maybe one thing that would aid me is really writing down what I'm eating each day and how I feel the next day. Do you feel like that is a good avenue for people making the connection? And does even knowing the next day or does it have a ripple effect? Does what you eat impact you for days? Yeah, I mean, I can definitely speak to how it impacts your sleep and your quality of your sleep. So, a few things. If you're eating any amount of food in the last three hours before you intend to fall asleep, you're compromising your sleep because your body has to digest the food that you have consumed. Okay, so if you are wanting to sleep the way that nature intended you to sleep, Whitney, and you fall asleep at, say, 10 p.m.? Well, let me just ask you, what time do you fall asleep? Well, it's a controversial answer. I usually go to sleep between 1 and 2 a.m. Pacific time. Okay. So that's fine. Everyone has different sleep patterns, okay? It's, there's no right or wrong in terms of the time that you go to sleep. However, there are ways that you can optimize your sleep. So let's say you go to sleep, you said, between 1 and 2. So you should not be eating after 10 p.m. at all. You should not be drinking alcohol at all. In fact, if you were going to drink alcohol, you're better off having alcohol for breakfast and giving your body 12 hours to get it out of the system than you are drinking it within, say, a few hours of sleep, as crazy as that sounds. So, you were talking about food. Think about it. When we eat food, what does our body do? It goes to work to digest that food, right? To break it down. So, why would you want to put your body to work three hours before going to sleep at a time when your body is ready to repair and restore and relax? It's insanity. So, zero food within three hours of sleep, zero alcohol within 12 hours of sleep, which means have wine for breakfast, have it with your cornflakes. A mimosa. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but honestly, it's crazy as that sounds. You're better off doing that because now you've got 12, 16 hours to let the body get it out of the system before then going to sleep. It's Of course, it's ridiculous, which is why I'm such a huge proponent in living an alcohol-free lifestyle. To speak to the types of foods, I mean, last night I had a meeting with one of my coaches. I have a business called Alcohol-Free Lifestyle, which helps people to reduce and quit alcohol and One of my coaches is based here in Brisbane, Australia, and she coaches a lot of my clients. And we went out to a Vietnamese restaurant and it was a beautiful meal, but it was spicy and it was quite heavy. And then afterwards we said, oh, let's go out for a sugar-free ice cream. And we walked up the road and had about 16 flavors. And I said, can I have the sugar-free one? And they went out the back, they brought the sugar-free out and we sat down and we ate that. And then I went back and I went to sleep. So we ended up staying up late. Well, it wasn't that late, but 
the meeting finished at say 9 p.m. and I was finishing my meal at 9 p.m., finishing the ice cream. And then I went home and I was in bed falling asleep at 9.30. So, that's not great. I didn't do a good job last night. And because of that, I woke up this morning not feeling exhausted, but feeling noticeably lethargic compared to previous mornings where I finish my meal around 6.30 and fall asleep around 9.30. So, you can see how the timing of dinner and the type of food can impact your sleep. Yeah, big time. And it's similar to caffeine and coffee. I'm curious how you feel about that. And are there correlations between that and alcohol? Because when you're talking about if you're going to drink, drink 12 hours before you go to sleep, it reminds me of some of the parameters that people give around caffeine and making sure that you don't have it too close to bedtime. Yeah. Look, coffee is a stimulant. Okay. Caffeine is a stimulant. Eight hours before sleep is when you should have your last coffee. So, if you're going to go to sleep at 9 p.m., you should not be drinking after 1 p.m. I would just encourage you to make a steadfast rule that you do not drink any caffeine in the afternoon. So, as soon as 12 o'clock noon rolls around, that's it. Banned. Not allowed to drink coffee. Now, again, there will be millions of people all over the world who will swear that they have coffee after dinner and it's part of their routine, it's part of their ritual, and they fall asleep just fine. Again, that may be the case. They may fall asleep just fine, but the quality of their sleep is going to be severely compromised. There is no way in the human world that we occupy currently that the stimulant of caffeine is not going to compromise your sleep quality. So again, I'll say it again, just for impact, you might be able to fall asleep just fine having a cup of coffee or alcohol or whatever, but the quality of your sleep is going to be compromised, which is why you wake up often feeling tired, lethargic, and irritable. That's incredibly important because it feels like people are often so committed, and this could be said about alcohol, food, and pretty much all the things that you've been talking about is looking for ways to justify the behavior despite the advice to do things differently. And I imagine you come <laughs> yeah. up against that a yeah. lot in your work, right? I'm curious, why do you think that is? Why do you think people are so stuck on their behaviors or really grasping onto their habits, even if they find all of this evidence or hear other people encouraging them to shift things? Why are they holding on to them so tightly? We're human beings and we like to avoid pain and run towards pleasure. <laughs> I mean, there's resistance there to breaking a habit. I mean, it, science shows it takes 66 days to break a habit. And so, there's a resistance often all the way through that. No, oh, but it's what I've always done. Okay. Well, if you've always do what you've always done, then you'll always get what you've always got. And in many cases, it's some of the things that we talked about, irritability or poor skin or fogginess or tiredness. I didn't make the rules. Whoever you believe up there, God, spirit, whatever, he or she made the rules. I'm just the messenger. So, science is pretty clear and the anecdotal evidence is pretty clear as well as to what the gold standard of sleep is and to how to live a healthy life. It's just we have very clever marketers who make us believe that if we wear certain clothes, then we'll feel a certain way. And if we 
drink certain products, then we'll feel a certain way and we'll feel connected and part of a tribe and so forth. Just on the sleep, it might be interesting to know that judges in the United States, okay, so judges, they tend to give defendants longer sentences the day after switching to daylight saving time in the spring compared with other days of the year. So, just think about daylight saving, right? Most of the world has daylight saving. When you lose that hour, okay, when the clocks spring forward to daylight saving time, on that morning, sentences for defendants are much harsher. Now, why is that? Well, it's because the judges are irritable and they're tired and they're pissed off and they're like, you got five years instead of three. The other thing is that they did this study in 2014 that on that, in the days following daylight saving time where the clocks move forward, the risk of you having a heart attack increases by 24% compared to other days during the year. And then when the clocks go back and we gain an extra hour in the fall, your heart attack risk falls 21%. Why is that? Well, it's because when you lose an hour, you get one hour less sleep on that morning. You're tired, more tired at least, irritable cranky. And then when you get the extra hour sleep, you're like, oh, I've got the extra hour sleep. You're less cranky. You're less irritable. It makes sense. They did this other study, absolutely insane, this study. It was in Seattle, Washington, or in a town just outside of Seattle, Washington, where they changed the school start hours by 50 minutes. They moved the start of the school from, I think it was 8.20 until 9.10. So, school used to start at 8.20. They moved it back 45 minutes or so to 9.10. They had a remarkable decrease in teen car crashes in the year after they moved that back. Because think about it. All these teens are in their final year of school. They're driving cars to work. They're tired. They crash the car. As soon as they moved the start time back 45 minutes, the number of teen car crashes dropped dramatically. This is not coincidental. There is so much evidence to support that if we are not sleeping the way that nature intended us to sleep, the quality of our life is severely compromised. The shorter your sleep, the shorter your life. Because poor sleep has been linked to obesity, cancer, diabetes, depression, anxiety. I mean, the evidence is clear. It's not just one study, one year, which... There's multiple studies over many years. So, focusing on your sleep, wearing a pair of blue light blocking glasses like I'm wearing now to block out as much of that artificial blue light from your screens as possible, ensuring that you're not eating within a three-hour window, ensuring that first thing in the morning when you wake up, you're exposing your body to natural sunlight because the natural sunlight hits the receptors in your skin and sets your circadian rhythm your internal body clock to say, oh, okay, this is daytime. This is wake-up time. Let me flood with daytime hormones. And then 16 hours later, your body's going to naturally start turning on the melatonin faucet because you've exposed yourself to that sun first thing in the morning. These little things, these little amendments you can make can completely transform your appreciation of life. Yes, absolutely. 
Before March 2020, every guest on this show recorded with me in person because I wanted to ensure the highest quality sound possible. But this took extra time and effort to produce, plus it limited me to people who were visiting or living in Los Angeles. When I switched to Zencaster, I realized how much easier remote recording was for me and my guests. Now everyone can easily record studio quality sound from the comfort of their own homes. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com and enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of the pro plan, which is what I use. I can't wait to hear your show, so send it over to me as soon as it's live. And that leads me to a question I have about marketing. So with my explorations and fascination with sleep, I'm someone who feels like I get all of these sleep gear, (laughs) the shades for blocking out the light and the different things I can wear on my face, sleep masks and the noise machine, which has been a game changer. I, I got a weighted blanket, which has been a big deal for me. I feel like so much in my life is like setting myself up for sleep and the the whole ritual that comes along with it. Last night, I was watching all these videos on TikTok about this newer light. I think the company is called Hatch and it's like a light where you can set up your whole ritual and it has noises built into it and meditations. And all these people are talking about how much of a difference it's made. And You can go down this whole rabbit hole and buy all of these things, but I'm curious how much you actually need to buy versus how much is just shifts in your routine, like you're saying here. And that also brings me back to a question about marketing, which is with everything that you know about marketing and how that's worked against us, how has that helped you go through leading your own companies? Because obviously we need to market things in order to get the word out about it. But has that influenced the way that you market the work that you do and the products that you sell and figuring out, are you going to make more things and do people actually need them versus creating more of a basic offering that is most important to somebody's routine? Yeah. So as it relates to sleep, I have a sleep company, Swanick Sleep, and we produce these blue light blocking glasses the affectionately known as Swannies. I'm wearing a pair of them now with the orange lens. And we started this business in 2015 at a time when not many people really knew about the benefits of blue light blocking glasses as it relates to sleep. And just to give context, the reason why you wear these glasses with the orange lens is to repel artificial blue light from your computer screen or TV screen or microwave light, refrigerator light, bathroom light, reading light, which if you're exposed to, if you're exposed to that light at night, it's tricking your body and brain into believing that it's daytime. And so you don't produce as much melatonin, which shows up as you not being able to sleep as well. So we produce these glasses to encourage people to wear them, say in the last hour before they go to sleep, so they can block that artificial blue light that might be stimulating them and compromising their sleep quality. Now that was a mouthful. So you can imagine trying to market these things and educate people and explain these things in 2015, Whitney, right? Took me a good 30 seconds and 40 seconds to explain that. If I said, do you understand what shoes are? You go, yes, I understand shoes. I said, do you understand alcohol? Yes, I understand alcohol. Do you understand food? Yes. Do you understand orange lens, blue light blocking glasses that block the artificial blue light from your computer screen, which help you sleep better? I mean, that's 
a lot more challenging. So from a marketing point of view, from Swanick Sleep, our sleep company, we've been trying to find the right balance between educating people as to what they can do to sleep better that do not involve our product, while also inviting them to use our product if they're not going to do the things that we are encouraging them to do that don't involve our product. I think I explained that okay. So for example, the absolute best thing that you can do for your sleep is at nighttime, live your life by candlelight. It's never to use a computer screen. It's never to use electronics. It's not to turn on a light bulb. It's literally when the sun goes down, you light candles and you sit in your home, wherever that is, and you live your life by candlelight because flame from a candle or fire does not compromise melatonin production. However, your bathroom light and your kitchen light and your microwave light and your refrigerator light, they do compromise your melatonin production. So here's the thing, just to answer your question, you don't need my product, Whitney. You don't need to wear blue light blocking glasses. You just turn off all the lights in your home and live in the dark or light a candle or two, right? And you will sleep great. But we live in 2022 and the likelihood, Whitney, that you're going to turn off all those lights and light candles and live your life by candlelight is pretty small, I'm going to imagine. So what's the next best thing you can do? Block as much artificial light at night as possible. And in my personal view, even though you might, accusers might say I'm biased, the easiest thing you can do to block the blue light, in my opinion, is literally just wear protection. And that is wear a pair of blue light blocking glasses. I'm biased again. I don't want this to be an infomercial. That's not my intention. But we have scientifically proven lens in our glasses. University of Washington, Harvard University, it's gone through independent studies. Our glasses do what we say that they do. And that is it, it blocks the artificial blue light that is guilty of completely messing with your sleep. So... I hope that answers your question. It's us trying to find the right balance between marketing and saying, hey, you don't need our glasses. Just stop drinking alcohol in the last three hours before sleep. Stop eating food. Live your life by candlelight. Don't look at screens. Eat well in the day. You don't need our product. But assuming that you're not going to do any of that stuff, or or at least some of it, and assuming you are going to watch TV at night and you are going to look at your phone and you are going to brush your teeth in the bathroom with the light on at night, then wear these glasses because these glasses will help you sleep better. And I can attest to that. And it's also impacted me in another way, which is I feel like when I wear my glasses, I become more aware of my surroundings. I see the way the light changes. And so it immediately shifts what I'm viewing. And I've also see the connection between what I'm doing. It's like, okay, I'm putting on the glasses because I'm using my device before bed. I love to read before I go to sleep, but I also prefer to read on my iPad because of all the functionality of it and the accessibility. So the blue blockers are my way to your point of being able to do something that I enjoy that of course I could go get an actual book. And like you said, turn on a candle, light a candle and read by candlelight. But am I going to do that at this point with how I'm interacting in the modern world? Probably not. And I think that is such an incredible thing to think about is, 
our whole routines of, for me, putting on the glasses and thinking, all right, what decision do I want to make next? It's a trigger for me of, okay, do I really want to be on my phone right now? Do I need to read a book on my iPad? Should I pick up an actual book? I start to become more aware just simply by putting them on. And the same thing for the morning too. I've gotten in the habit, as I mentioned, it's actually helped me feel like I'm easing into my day differently. It feels less abrupt. I I like the sun. I actually keep my windows open in the morning so that the sun will come in and help me wake up. But I also feel like a lot of times I do get on my computer or my phone earlier than I would like to. I'm not at a point yet where I've conditioned myself not to use the devices, which I imagine comes up as well. There's so much advice about like, try not to use your phone or your computer or devices within 30 minutes or an hour of waking up. And that's the ideal for me. But to your point, that's not always the situation. Sometimes I have something urgent that I need to check on or I haven't woken up early enough to (laughs) give myself that space. And that's the complexity, I think, of this time we live in. And it also ties into your points about how our society responds to sleep. We are in a time where we're encouraged to not rest we're encouraged to be on our devices all the time and to work all the time and to communicate all the time. And if we think of how much our lives are are on these devices, I don't think we're being really set up to be away from them. So I absolutely agree that at the very least you can do is put on a pair of glasses to help you sleep and think differently. And that ties into, since I'm thinking about routines, You were bringing up rituals before, especially in the context of alcohol. And before we started recording, you were sharing about some events that you've done. You've done some traveling. I'm curious about two things. The first is, I believe you were saying that you had your own event in Austin, Texas recently, or you were participating in one. How does alcohol play a role for you as a guest at events, but also as a host of events? and navigating the conditioning that many people have about expecting there to be alcohol and it's being passed around or everybody seems to be doing it. There's a lot of kind of pressure or expectation there. And how have you navigated and shifted that? Well, to be clear, I had an event in Austin, Texas at the Hyatt Regency on Lady Bird Lake there a couple of weeks ago, and it was called the Alcohol-Free Lifestyle Wellness Weekend. So I don't think there was an expectation from participants that I'd be providing alcohol or that alcohol would be prevalent. We had people fly in from all over the country and we had a two-day workshop and it was really fun. We went on a hike around Ladybird Lake and we had speakers come in and talk about relationships and healthy habits and mindsets and conscious communication and, and things like that. So again, there wasn't an expectation that alcohol would be present there and That's because I've set the expectation, and that is you can go to conferences and have a great time being alcohol-free. And so, we intentionally took the participants out to dinner at night to a restaurant where alcohol is flowing with all of the other restaurant guests, and we ordered soda water, ice, and a piece of lime, and we had a meal. And so, we have them experience what it's like to go out with a big group of people and have dinner and not order alcohol. I'm sure the restaurant owner was very disappointed in us because the tab wasn't <laughs> as nearly as much as what he, he or she probably would have hoped. And so, getting people into that experience of even going out on a date 
like being asked out on a date, maybe if you're a woman and the man says, oh, let's meet for a drink. That's a very common date suggestion, is it? Oh, shall we meet for a drink? We coach our clients on what to say and what to do when they end up going for the date. And it's very easy and very casual. Well, it's very simple, I should say, even though it might not feel easy, which is, yeah, I just don't drink. Yeah, I'm alcohol-free. Or just to let you know, I don't drink. I'd, I'd be happy to meet you for a daytime for a walk or a coffee or a tea. Or if we do meet, just so you know, I'll just be drinking soda water. I'd love to meet you, blah, 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 you know, that kind of stuff. And so we help people create the expectation there, not just for themselves, but also for whoever they're going to meet. So the idea here is that you can have as much fun, if not more, being completely alcohol-free because you're clear. The depth of conversation is far greater when you're clear from alcohol. The connection, the intimacy, the bond, the fun, the feeling is enhanced from being alcohol-free. And then once people have buy-in on that concept and they understand that, then it just becomes how do we give them confidence to be able to go out and practice that? How do we put them in practical situations where they actually do go to a family function and everyone's drinking and they're the only one who's not? How do we get them to be really lighthearted and playful about it versus, oh my God, I'm the only one who's not drinking? And so lightheartedness is definitely something that we coach throughout all of our clients, which is, yeah, I'm not drinking. Yeah, I'm not drinking at the moment. Oh, look out, I'm going to get drunk on this soda water. Ha, 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 ha. Making fun of yourself. Because where people get stuck, where people get themselves into trouble is where they put out a perception that their life is boring or dull because they're not drinking. And that's the fear, right? The fear is that they'll be boring or dull if they stop drinking or that other people will think that they're boring and dull if they're not drinking, right? That's the perception. But if you're going into every social function, whether it's a conference or a family function or a date or whatever, and you're like, yeah, no, I'm alcohol-free and not drinking, taking a break for a while. Oh, I haven't drunk in two years, but let's get drunk on this soda water or look out, I'm going to have fun on this then the other person or the other people don't care because the only thing they really care about is are you having fun and are you chill and are you fun to be around? That's it. Yes. And it's interesting too because as you're sharing that, I'm thinking about I think it's the desire to have fun, but it's also the desire to escape the discomfort. A lot of people say I need liquid courage, right? So how do you coach people around their habits of drinking to escape uncomfortable feelings or awkwardness, or like you said, building their confidence, associating alcohol with numbing themselves so that they can handle a certain situation or a feeling that they're going through. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a few things that we coach, but one of the things that we actually did at our conference was we did a silent disco where we gave everyone headphones and we played music and we had a facilitator who was leading us in it. And we did this kind of as the sun was going down over Austin, which was beautiful. And so imagine a whole bunch of 30s, 40s, and 50-something men and women dancing to silence. I mean, everyone was listening to music with the headphone, but to observers walking by, they were like, what the hell are those people doing? But that exercise is designed to get us into our bodies and get us past that initial resistance because everyone has a 
resistance in the first two or three minutes of dancing in a silent disco with no alcohol or no liquid courage because it's like, oh my God, people are going to watch me dance and I'm going to move. And people do have that resistance. But then after two or three minutes, as you get into your body and you start to get that feeling of dancing and people are looking, you start to feel more comfortable, you start to feel more comfortable. And then by the end of it, people would like jumping up and down and they were like doing tiger crawls across the ground and they're like holding hands and all kinds of stuff. And people were saying afterwards, that was the first time that they had danced without any alcohol. Isn't that crazy? You imagine that, the first time that they danced without alcohol because they needed alcohol in order to loosen up and to move their body. That's crazy to me. It seems crazy. So, just to answer your question, we do a lot of things around leaning into initial resistance, getting in touch with our body. We give scripts that you can rehearse if someone says, oh, why aren't you drinking? But they're not like these forced scripts where it's like having to justify why you're not drinking. It's like these very fun, playful kind of responses. Because you you know what's crazy? When you think about this for a moment, alcohol is the only drug where you have to justify why you're not consuming it. You have to give a reason. People demand an explanation. Why aren't you drinking alcohol? But let me tell you, if you said to someone, I mean, I've got a problem with, I've stopped taking heroin or I've stopped taking crystal meth, People are like, oh, that's a shame. Why? Why did you, did, you know? Like, it's the only drug where you've got to justify it. Where they're like, come on, just have one drink. You'll be fine. No, I don't want one. It's insane. That's cultural conditioning doing its worst. Yes. And that came up when I mentioned the videos I put out about some of the alcohol alternatives, I was really amazed and intrigued by the responses that people had. Like, why would you drink something if it didn't have alcohol in it? That was one of the most common questions. Like, well, what's the point of something if I can't get drunk? And just noticing people, they were not only expressing these questions and making fun of people who don't drink, but They were saying it so confidently because of your point of that it's actually more common to drink than not to drink. And that if you don't drink, people wonder, well, are you pregnant or are you an alcoholic or is it for religious reasons? Like you do have to justify it or you stand out in a way. And this is the reason why I think the alcohol alternatives are so amazing because sometimes You don't want to even have to explain. Do you find that to be the case too, that people would just rather hold something in their hands so that they don't have to tell someone they don't want to drink? Or do you feel like a lot of people are actually looking for opportunities to talk about their reasons? Most people initially don't like the idea of having people ask them why they're not drinking, but then they go through my coaching. I have a program that's called Project 90. And we help, I guess, what you call high achievers, entrepreneurs, investors, realtors, people who are kind of successful in their profession, let's say. We help those folks to quit drinking for 90 days and we give them a whole bunch of tools that enables them to go to work functions and to social gatherings and family gatherings, confidently being alcohol-free. So, when they begin in the first week, they're very nervous and hesitant But then by week two, week three, we have them do and practice some exercises. After 30 days or so, they're like, oh, yeah, I don't drink. And they're proudly telling people that they don't drink and it's no big deal. 
I am very grateful to have Zencaster as a sponsor. They have been so supportive of the show through social media and newsletter shout outs. Plus, they have truly incredible customer service. Their all-in-one podcast production platform keeps getting better and better because they take user feedback seriously. I'm especially grateful for the HD video recording features, which makes it easy to put this show on YouTube and social media. If you want to try it out, visit Zencaster.com. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com. It's free to try, and you can enter the code WELLEVATOR to receive 30% off your first three months of their pro plan, which, as I mentioned, is what I use for this show. If you have any questions about podcasting, send me a message, and I'd be happy to share more tips and tricks. I have a podcast on Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts called Alcohol-Free Lifestyle. And most of the guests there are graduating clients of mine. But on day one, when they enroll, they go, absolutely no way in the world I am going to be on your podcast. I am a very private, confidential person. I don't want anyone knowing that I'm doing this course because people will think that I've got a problem, an alcoholic. Sometimes I say I haven't even told my wife or I haven't even told my husband most of them tell their spouse, but some of them are like so paranoid about what people are going to think if they're doing a quit drinking program that they just private and confidential. And then by day 70, they're saying, hey, um, how do I get on the podcast? Do people who graduate at 90, do they get to be on the podcast? It's so fascinating. It's like imagine taking a late 40s, early 50s adult completely set in their ways, absolutely terrified of what their friends and family will think if they're learning how to quit drinking, throw them in a quit drinking program for 90 days, and then they come out the other end and go, put me on the podcast. I want to tell the world. (laughs) It's crazy you see the transformation, which just illustrates to me is that their apprehension about what people will think was misguided in the first place because nobody really cares that you don't drink. They just care that you don't have fun or that you're boring to be around if you don't drink. That's it. So stop being sheepish and embarrassed and apologize for not drinking and start just owning it. Don't also want to be pompous either about it and go, oh, I don't drink. I'm so cool. You don't want to be like all of a sudden you start to go, oh, I'm so cool. I don't drink. And here's why you shouldn't drink. Like I encourage our clients not to do that. Because nobody likes that person either, right? But if pressed, if asked, yeah, I don't drink. Yeah, I quit. Feel great. Lost weight. Feel good. Sleep better. Just like it. Life without alcohol is better for me. But you go right ahead. You do your shots and I'll do my shots of soda water. That's it. The end. Yeah. Well, it reminds me a lot of my experience as a vegan, there's certainly some people that, that want to get on their soapbox about it. And I found over the years, yeah, certainly it's nice to talk about it. People ask, but everybody is making their own choices for their own reasons. And it's, it's not my job unless asked to tell somebody what they should do. But it actually reminds me of one other thing that I want to ask before we start to wrap up, which is when you're around someone who doesn't drink, Let's say that you do decide to keep drinking after listening to this, which is certainly bringing up a lot of thoughts for me. This has been very thought-provoking and encouraging because I guess it's helped me understand 
or reflect upon why even drink in the first place, especially with all of these alternatives or even just having soda water. There's just so much coming out now to give you another option, or you can just train yourself to not even need the option in the first place. But I think about being around somebody who doesn't drink. So let's say you've listened to this episode, you understand the reasons, but the listener is still going to choose to drink. Is there a way that they can be supportive of other people that they're around who choose not to drink? Or should they just go about their lives? I'd just be curious in a very non-judgmental way. Just be like, oh, I noticed that you're not drinking. Tell me more about that. Oh, I have something I've been considering or pondering. Will you share with me what your thought process was behind that? That's it. I love Pretty that. Simple. The curiosity. Yes. Yeah, just be curious. You don't make anyone bad for their choices. You don't, you don't try to make anyone feel bad for their choices. You're just supportive of people's choices or you're neutral about people's choices because obviously it's challenging to be supportive of someone's choice to go and get raging drunk every night and get DUIs. But if that person's wanting change, you can be supportive of that. And whatever the choice is, you can also be neutral about it. And when I say neutral, what I mean is you could just ask questions without judgment. Oh, yeah. Tell me about that. I'm curious. So actually, I've been thinking about cutting back a little bit and I notice that you don't drink. How does that work? As opposed to, you don't drink, but it's my birthday. Come on, just have one. See the difference? Yes, absolutely. I think that's an important shift. And I wish more people talked about sleep as much as they talk about alcohol. (laughs) Like, why don't we ask people about their sleep schedules (laughs) instead of pressuring them to drink? Why don't we get curious about how other people sleep? I certainly, in this moment, I'm thinking, I just feel like I want to go out of my way to just ask people about how they're sleeping because it really is a fascinating subject matter and just opens up so many interesting conversations. Because like I said, I think a lot of people struggle with sleep, but because it's not openly discussed that much, I feel like a lot of people don't even bring up their sleep challenges or their sleep celebrations unless they're struggling or achieving something big. And I know your world is probably full of all these incredible stories of how people's lives have been changed. And what are some of your favorite resources beyond your own for sleep, a favorite knowledge bases, or are there communities where people talk about their sleep for those that want to find more conversations about this? I think you already hit the nail on the head, which is just bring up sleep as a conversation topic. I'm going to a dinner with five of my guy friends tonight on the Gold Coast, which is on the East Coast of Australia, six guys. And I'm going to take my blue light blocking glasses, Swannies with me because I like to wear them and towards the end of the night. And that is going to elicit a conversation about sleep. And then I'm sure we'll all talk about what we eat and what we drink and exercise because my friends are very health conscious and they're into that kind of stuff. I mean, you asked other communities to tap into. I think just start the conversation with your friends and with your family, like relay something that you may have heard from this conversation I'll tell you what starts a conversation is when you're wearing a pair of blue light blocking glasses because people are like, oh, what are they? And then you start to get into the conversation and then people start to feel educated and then they want to try them on and then they go, oh, okay, righto. Or you show up to a party or a function with an alcohol-free beverage or you go to dinner 
and everyone's ordering drinks and you just say, I'll have a soda water and you allow people to ask you why aren't you drinking and you practice saying, oh, yeah, I'm just taking a break for a while, I'm not drinking and practice getting comfortable with that. So rather than going into like a Facebook group and finding communities online, I would just in your own world initiate the conversation around it and practice the things that you heard here and have people in your life notice you practicing them. And don't try to force your new knowledge on people because it's, people tend to like, oh, I discovered this new thing. You've got to read it. You have to do it, do it, do it. And people get like, oh, hang on a second. All you got to do is just be the change. Let me tell you something. If you lose some weight, if you're wanting to lose some weight or your skin looks better or you're happier or you're refreshed or you're more energetic, people are going to notice and they're going to ask you, what's your secret? And then you share it with them and then they go and do that thing. And before you know it, you've influenced your friends and your family and your community without really going out there and telling them what to do. They're just doing, they're making the changes because they're inspired by your way of being. Yes. Wow. Very well said. And I think that's a wonderful way to end this conversation because it gives you a another reason to consider making a shift. And it certainly influenced me because I feel energized. And when I was looking up your work, that was one of the things on your website was giving people energy and clarity, I believe. And you've given me both today. You've inspired me to think differently about this. You've certainly inspired me to wear my glasses every night. Sometimes I find myself going, eh, I don't need to wear those tonight. <laughs> but now I feel like I just want to be more intentional about it because I see the ripple effect. I want to be intentional about my uh, food and drinking choices and really evaluate it, ask myself more questions internally and open up these conversations. Because I also feel like to your point, when you have these dialogues with other people, you hold each other accountable and you learn through your curiosity and you bond with people in a new way. And I also really love your point about how people don't really care if you drink. They just want you to have fun. And I think that is such a key point. And the big thread through here is helping people tap into themselves in newer ways and really see that the energy and the fun and the happiness are within us and we don't need to have alcohol to cultivate that. And we can make these small shifts in our lives to sleep better and the ripple effect that good sleep has. So thank you for covering all this terrain here today. You're so welcome. And thank you for asking great questions, Whitney, and for inviting me into the conversation. And I hope that you sleep better and you have a better relationship with alcohol and food and you continue living your best life. I think you're doing a tremendous job is my impression. So thank you again. Well, thank you. I'm off to the doctor to find out the results of my sleep study. So you've given me a food for thought, drink for thought. Is that a term? Should be. <laughs> and for the listener, I have linked to everything as usual in the show notes for this episode, including a discount code that I have for Swanwick. Wellevator is a coupon code you can use. It's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. I'm a proud affiliate of Swanwick. And all of those links if you want to go check them out. What is the name of my glasses? Because I love my Swannies. The specific style in these frames are so light and comfortable. 
Oh, yeah, they're cool. I don't know what the name of that brand is. Let's have <laughs> a look. Also, oh, that style, I should say. The style, Not yeah. Brand, well, they're the also style. on the, yeah, the style. On the old side. So maybe you've upgraded them. They're the gray glasses and with the orange okay. lens, and they're a little dirty because I need to clean them <laughs> and probably a little scratched up because they need so to long. be replaced. Yeah, exactly. I've had these for, like I said, I think so you many have years. either the catalyst. I think they're the catalyst. Let me have a closer look. Yeah, I think that you have that's the catalyst line, or it might be the Havana Night Swannies as well. Not sure. One of those two. But if you go to the, the website, I will link we've got to different them. Lines that, yes. I you love know what you've that. got? You've got the Oxford Night Swannies. That's what they are. Okay. Oxford. They're yeah. incredibly they Very comfortable. Cool, Whitney. Yeah. They're awesome. And you are so right about them being a conversation starter. I feel like people are very curious. And I hope that we get to a point where more people wear them and they don't stand out as much as they currently do because the impact that a small decision like that can make on your life is pretty amazing. So I will link to the exact pair that I have in the show notes at wellevator.com along with all the different resources that James has provided here today, the link to his website and his coaching and his social media. You can go check out that video I referenced on TikTok or Instagram about George Clooney because I absolutely loved it. That's all in one place at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R. And I hope that the listener has learned a lot and contemplated their life. I wish you all the very best with how you feel during the day and especially at sleep. I hope you sleep well whenever you sleep next. And thanks again, James, for being here today to share all these wonderful tips and perspectives. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 